Searching for a research partner to handle the details of your next qualitative project? When we say fieldwork can handle it all, we mean it. From world-class facilities to low-incidence recruitment, their team of experts handles the details so you can stay focused on the research. Say goodbye to traditional focus group rooms and recruitment tactics. As market research has grown from the standard focus group to incorporate other innovative methodologies and technologies, fieldwork has expanded along with it. With facilities nationwide and sophisticated global recruitment services, their detail-oriented staff partners with you to achieve great insights. Focus on the research. Fieldwork will do the rest. And welcome to Ponderings from the Perch, the Little Bird Marketing Company podcast. I'm Priscilla McKinney. I am the Mama Bird and CEO here. And with me today is Emmanuel Probst. He is a second time podcast guest. So welcome back to the show, Emmanuel. Priscilla, Mama Bird, thank you so much for having me back on the show and connecting with your audience, your community again. I really appreciate it. Well, there's a real reason to have you back on. First of all, huge congrats for writing another book. Honestly, I don't know how you do it. (laughs) We're going to talk about that a little bit. But if you do not know Emmanuel, first of all, go listen to his other episode. And I'll go ahead and put that in the show notes. But he is a global lead, a brand thought leadership professional over at Ipsos. And he had a great book that we talked about on the podcast, but he came back because there's another book out and this is called Assembly. And this is really recognizing that to succeed, brands just don't have to go around selling products anymore. That's just not what it's about, but they have to transform us and the world that we live in. And this is really a beautiful book that will guide you through what is the art and really some science and just a lot of specifics and nuance about how brands can create transformative experiences and really have a positive impact on people's lives. So the book is Assemblage and we're going to put it in the show notes, but we're going to talk about that today. So let's start with that, Emmanuel. What is an assemblage. Thank you, Priscilla. Assemblage is a process winemakers go through to create a whiskey or a cognac, for example. And what this means is when you want to create a great whiskey blend or cognac or bourbon or what have you, you're going to pick and choose from a wide range of barrels, of aging processes, of grain initially, of other alcohols, And you're going to combine and mix this together until you arrive to what you believe is the perfect product. And what I mean by this is a product that has a strong identity that aligns with your brand and also a product that is distinctive, that is different from competition. And this world is a metaphor, in my view, for the process good marketers and brand managers should follow. That is, uh, collect and reach for a wide range of personal, social, cultural attributes that you can bring to your brand so that indeed it meets the market and it goes beyond just selling products, as you said in your introduction, but also make a positive impact on our lives, and the world around us. Okay, so why the switch? Kind of why the book now? Because what has changed? Why is this important to marketers? Why is this kind of emerging as a bigger topic that we're having in the business world and in the brand world? 
Yeah. Well, two things come to mind, at least two things. Number one is we're overwhelmed with products and we're overwhelmed with brands, right? And let's face it, most customers don't care about most brands. Sure, you have a few brands, Patagonia, Crocs, REI, Apple, Nike. Those brands command passion and dedication, if you will, from consumers. But the reality is most brands do not. So number one, we have too many products, too many brands to choose from, and we want to focus on what really matters. And number two, those brands are dynamic. And we, again, expect brands to go beyond just selling. We want, and that is so important as we are hopefully coming out from this pandemic, that is, we expect brands to make a positive impact. And what I mean by this is we expect brands to help with diversity, inclusion, economic recovery, sustainability, recycling, upcycling. I need those brands to do good for my world and the world at large. And examples include, top of mind, I'm thinking of Levi's, I'm thinking of Lululemon, I'm thinking of Ikea. Those are brands, for example, that encourage their customers to bring back items they already owned and give them a second life by selling those items to someone else. That's one of the many examples of how brands can do good. This is like the the whole topic of how brands are now awake and alive to the possibility that they could co-create a new future with consumers. And these aren't necessarily two sides working against each other, that brands and people can work together for something positive. So let's delve a little bit deeper into the book. I really like the way that you really did a framework almost about this concept of anti-heroes, saviors, and villains. So tell my audience a little bit about that concept that you came up with and, and what those three things mean for a brand. Yeah, Priscilla, as you said, co-create is a very important word. So that is how the world has changed. And that's why brands are a dynamic assemblage, whereby three, five, seven years ago, marketers could dictate the narrative to their audience. Today, there must be, marketers must be more intentional. Intentional means co-creating with the brand. And how do we do this? Well, by assembling, as we said, personal, social, cultural attributes around me, the individual, my world, my friends and family, the world around me, and the world at large. And one way to do this, and many ways to do this that are all outlined in the book and articulated very clearly for readers, but one way to do this is through archetypes. And chapter you alluded to, Priscilla, is about heroes, anti-heroes, villains, and saviors. And what they all have in common is they are all relatable and they are sympathetic in their own ways. And what we can learn from this in marketing is, number one, the consumer should always be positioned as the hero, not the brand, right? Marketers are here to facilitate the transformation. The brand is here to facilitate this transformation from who am I as a consumer to who do I want to become? So those archetypes of anti-heroes, villains, and saviors work really, really well because unlike heroes, so a hero like Batman, Superman, all those heroes are perfect. In contrast, the likes of Tony Soprano and Don Draper, those heroes that you see in pop culture, 
they have anti-heroes whereby they have flaws and therefore are relatable. I really loved how that flowed from the original idea. If I think about your book, Brand Hacks, you really were talking about this idea of meaning, that Mm -hmm. customers Mm -hmm. are looking for meaning. And then when I was reading through that of heroes, anti-heroes, saviors, villains, I was like, and we all can see like a deeper meaning behind that story from each one of them. And so we resonate in a different way with each one of them. I thought that was a really interesting build from your first idea. But I'm going to just put you on the spot here because I think you said something in this new book, Assemblage, that is probably the most controversial part of your book. And I don't know if you agree with me that this is the most controversial, but you actually said in there that perception is the truth. So tell me about that controversial statement and what you really mean. Yeah, perception is the truth. And I'll make it more controversial for our listeners today, Priscilla, is In marketing, the truth doesn't really matter. What matters is what people believe, or should I say perceive, the brand and the product to be. And let me give you an extreme example, or not extreme, but a real example. Last night, I was at Walgreens, and I actually needed some dishwashing liquid. And a famous brand was claiming 50% less scrubbing. And what I mean by perception is the truth is... No one, none of our listeners, or at least I don't think so, will go through the hassle of testing if indeed no. with this brand, you scrub 50% less than with competitor B or C. Always to say that here in marketing, we're here to build a perception, once again, of what the brand is and importantly, who am I going to become as a user, as a consumer, as an outcome of using this brand? So mm. perception is the truth. It means that as individuals, not consumers, forget about consumption. As individuals, we construct our own truths based on the perception of the world, based on the information we are exposed to, and frankly, in a way, based on what we want the truth to be. That's why fake news, or we could call that sometimes alternative facts, uh, resonate with people. Yeah, I think no matter how you put a marketing campaign together, anything that involves me scrubbing 50% less is definitely the thing that I'm going to choose. But I would go back actually to the very beginning of this podcast where you were talking about an assemblage and when if you're going to make a fine cognac, how are you going to start the blend? So I'd just like to imagine us both right now enjoying a fine cognac together. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So let's bring that idea back. So this idea of assemblage. So we agree here that kind of where your first book went was this idea that brands really need to figure out how to build their brand based on the need for consumers to derive some personal meaning from it. That was a really interesting look at it. And what you're saying here in Assemblage is really how do you put together the right pieces of the brand? Like, how do you make that blend? So tell me a little bit about that, because you do work day in and day out with brands. You consult with big brands and brands that everybody knows. So when you're kind of trying to put those pieces together, what does that conversation sound like? Yeah, well, three things come to mind. It's how to make that blend, how to create that blend, and do so in a dynamic fashion. What I mean here is brands evolve and the meanings of these brands evolve. And a good example is the James Bond franchise. The James Bond franchise is an assemblage because 
the core elements to the brand are consistent over time. So it's a spy, he's British, and he fights evil, and he's an anti-hero himself, by the way, because he has an alcohol problem and he's an orphan. And at the same time, the brand has evolved over time, whereby you now see some LGBTQ-oriented characters in the show. You also see people of colors in the show that you would not have seen a few years ago. You also see James Bond fighting different types of enemies, meaning not just the KGB, I'm sorry, in the East, but more global enemies, if you will, and digitally attuned enemies. So that's a good example of an assemblage. Number two, you said, yes, I work with big brands. What's powerful in the book is you can also create assemblages, powerful assemblages, if you're a small brand. And that's something that is so important in my writing, Priscilla, whereby we all love looking at the big case studies. Again, Nike, Patagonia, all these are great. We also care, I deeply care about what small and medium businesses in America can enable. Because let's not forget that only 7% of us work for a Fortune 500. Everyone else works for a small or medium business. And as such, vast majority of brands don't have $75 million <laughs> to advertise and to strategize in 2023. So how do we create those assemblages? Well, we list, we first collect sample those different elements and we then mix and match in terms of where do I want the brand? How do I want the brand to stand out? And importantly, in light of alternatives, in light of competition, what territory as a brand can I own? And how can I own this territory in the long run? So what's important in this book as an evolution from brand hacks is this notion that the brand is dynamic and will adapt over time. Okay. So I do want to kind of call out a little bit of what you just said, because mm -hmm. this is really key. On this show, often people talk about the big brands. I backed several episodes. I was talking with Stephanie Cousins from Fluent Research. We were talking about Dove and some of the meaning that they've given and some of the story arc and the kinds of things that co-creation. And these are all interesting. But in your book, you actually bring up a few examples of smaller companies. And why don't you give us one of those examples and kind of break that down so people can kind of resonate with that too? Because you're right. Very few of us work for one of these large companies and even fewer within the people who work for those are the people who get to direct creating that assemblage. <laughs> but many of us are working at it and crafting it in the small to medium business world. So give us that example of a smaller one very tangibly. Yeah. Well, briefly, by the way, Dove is an excellent example because even though it's a very big Unilever brand, the concept of real beauty showing what real beauty is about, genuine, authentic beauty, that concept can be applied by any direct-to-consumer firm that has not even 1% of the budget. To your point, I can think of a brand like Umsum in the United States that is a DTC brand that sells Asian flavors for ready meals and has a mission around it in terms of how they deliver the product and how the recipes are created, the heritage, the cultural heritage of the founders. That's also very personable. In a different context, in fashion, Fashion Apparel, a great brand in Europe is called Asphalt. Asphalt is a brand 
that produces only what they sell, meaning instead of manufacturing 5,000 sweaters, they will reach out to their audience first. And that is this product of co-creation we spoke about, Priscilla. They will reach out to their audience first, ask them, what type of sweater do you want for the winter? And from there, that ongoing market research process creates the perfect sweater for the audience and produce only what they sell. And the outcome is one, the process of co-creation with consumers and Two, from a supply chain standpoint, if you will, and sustainability standpoint, a lot less waste and a lot less discounts because, again, they produce only what they sell. A third example, if I may, because we like to quote examples, is <laughs> a British brand of paint called Faro and Ball. There is an interview with their CEO in the book. And Faro and Ball is small in that regard produces, I think, 130,000 gallons of paint a year in contrast with someone like Sherwin-Williams that is in millions, okay? So it's a fairly small brand. Now, what they are doing right is they will send a interior designer, trained interior designer to your house to help you choose the right shade of gray, for example, depending on the room, your furniture, and the time of the day and how the light penetrates the room. And Faro and Ball has actually a lot less options, a lot less shades, if you will, than a big company like Sherwin-Williams. However, they have the right ones and they provide that personalized service. And long story short, I think that's a great example of a brand that, again, is doing more for me, the consumer, because it is showing me how this paint is going to transform the place where I live. And it's also a brand that's doing more for the world around us by producing less products and focusing solely on the products that people want and people will buy. I love that. Okay, so from this book, Assemblage, The Art and Science of Brand Transformation, let's put that for most people who are listening. If they're in charge of their marketing, their market research, they're like bringing the storytelling of their the power of their brand together, where could they start? What should they be doing in the next meeting to really start having or even opening up this conversation about how we could transform our brand? Yeah, well, that reminds me of the conclusion of the book. And it is not called just conclusion. It says, now it is your turn. And where can they start? Is The first thing is they should close their laptop. And, <laughs> and they should And stop. get the cognac, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I knew we were going to come back to cognac. I believed in us, Emmanuel. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, close the laptop. Stop Googling things for a minute. Also, because if you Google something... Whatever comes up on page one, that means that hundreds of thousands, potentially millions, dozens of millions of people have access to these exact same results, right? So step one is you close the laptop, stop Googling things. Step two is you look at the world around you, at people around you, not just friends and family, because they will tell you what you want to hear, but people at the mall, people in your local community, at the YMCA, people at your maybe health club, and understand what are these people trying to achieve? Who are they trying to become? And as a marketer, as a brand strategist, the first thing you should do is stop thinking about marketing and stop thinking about brand strategy. You should understand 
this audience I'm talking with, I'm not talking to them, I'm talking with them. This audience I'm talking with, who are they and who do they want to become? What world do they live in? And what is the world around them, how they want it to evolve? From there, you will assemble the cultural, social, personal elements that are going to make your brand distinctive and a right fit for this audience and sustainable, ensure a long-term success and not just a tactical move. And there we are back to that co-creation again. It means that the brand needs to be somewhat vulnerable to say, hey, we're willing to change that life as it is and the world that we live in is not the one necessarily we want to live in. And so what are the steps we need to take and how could we take them with the consumer? You're right, as we started at the very beginning to say things have changed. This idea is emerging, not because necessarily businesses are like, innovated and came up with this idea, <laughs> but it's because a pretty big demand and pretty big pressure from the consumer now to say, I'm expecting more from this brand. And from your work with so many Fortune 500 companies, you do know that they are fully cognizant of this pressure that brands are living in. And yes, that pressure trickles down because as people become aware of their ability as a consumer to put the pressure on the larger companies, they're doing the same with smaller companies too. And we all have to Comply. And it's not about really compliance, which is where I loved where your book went. It's about being like wanting to walk into the conversation. Don't come being dragged in by the consumer that is forcing you to change, but instead be enticed into this world. And I love that, just that tactical thing. Shut the laptop down. You really need the chance to think and what could be for this brand and what could be for our consumer. And is that a much more beautiful place to be? One very important word you just chose, uh, Bird, aka Priscilla, is vulnerable. And I think a key takeaway from this conversation is indeed, as marketers, to be humble, to be vulnerable, to be intentional. And you also use the word expectations. And let me clarify intentions versus expectations. Customers have expectations towards a brand, towards a product in terms of what it's going to deliver for me functionally. So my expectation from a toothpaste is it's going to make my teeth whiter. My expectation from a dish soap is I'm going to scrub 50% less and so on and so forth. Those are important. It's around functional attributes. It's around reliability, consistency of the product. When I go to Dunkin' Donuts, what I want is not a gourmet experience. I want coffee on the go that is delivered to me consistently and it's consistently good. In contrast, intentions, and that's where marketers need to be intentional. Intentions is about this process of co-creation. So we're going back to Faro and Ball or to Asphalt or many other brands. I'm going to co-create with my audience what the brand stands for and what it is going to achieve. And for our audience, Priscilla, it's important once again to say, you can do this when you're a very big brand like Dove and Unilever. My intention is to change the narrative around what real beauty is. That's what Dove does. And you can do this if you're a very small brand and you're just the coffee shop next door. You're an independent coffee shop. Your intentions is not to compete with Starbucks. 
because you don't have a supply chain, you don't have a footprint, you don't have a brand awareness. Your intention is to provide a unique experience that benefits your local community with respect for the growers. That's an example. I love that. And it kind of brings me back to some thoughts I think you and I discussed originally, which were really a focus on creating satisfaction with your own consumers and building that anticipation that they know that they're going to be satisfied with what you're delivering to them. You can focus then on long-term positive memories and really try and keep the love flowing longer, but you still have to start with that. How do I actually deliver on the customer's desires right now? So, okay. I really think you should listen to him. He holds an MBA in marketing and a doctorate in consumer psychology. So does that tell you anything about what you just heard? So Dr. Emmanuel, probes. Thanks so much for being with us. But I just want to give one last shout out. And also just to, I do think that the first book is such a good precursor. So if you haven't read it before, it's Brand Hacks, How to Build Brands by Fulfilling the Customer Quest for Meaning. And then that, in my opinion, really flows so nicely into this one, which is Assemblage the art and science of brand transformation. So you can see how they dovetail so nicely, but I really recommend that you pair this with a fine cognac, as we've obviously <laughs> stated. <laughs> Maybe that will be the next step for my personal brand, Priscilla. I should I get love into it. the cognac business. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining us on Ponderings from the Perch. Priscilla, thank you so much. And thank you to our audience, your community today for listening. From all of the peeps here at Little Bird Marketing, have a great day and happy marketing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.